right, good morning. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 22 through 26 this morning. That's Mark 14, 22 through 26. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we come to the portion of Mark's Gospel that records the institution of the Lord's Supper by Jesus Christ on the night of Passover. This morning we find ourselves in, in what I believe is one of the highest points of Mark's Gospel. Um, we find ourselves in one of the richest texts in Mark concerning the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves, as I said earlier, at the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord's Supper, or communion, uh, is, is something that we do each week in worship, and we do it each week because Jesus commands us to do it. Um, since, since he commands it, often people will call it an ordinance. It's been ordained by Christ or sacrament. These are interchangeable terms. Uh, but it's an ordinance of Christ. He has commanded it, and so we observe it. In Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, Jesus commanded his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And since it's commanded by Christ to his followers, we know that it is most definitely important for us to observe it. The Lord's Supper is an incredibly important aspect of our worship of God. Uh, the supper is, is so full of rich symbolism that we need to grasp so as to benefit more and more from it as we come to the table each week. Though I want to affirm it is more than a mere symbol. It's more than a memorial. We believe that uh, Christ is really spiritually present in the supper. And I believe Pastor Stephen is going to speak on that a little bit more this morning uh, before we take communion together. Um, but it is nevertheless symbolic. It's full of rich symbolism. Um, the Lord's Supper preaches the gospel to us if we understand it rightly. It is, as many theologians have rightly said, it is the word of God made visible to our senses. That's what the sacraments are. It's what baptism is as well. The word of God made visible. Um, and that's what our Lord intended when he instituted the Lord's Supper. As we come to his table each week, he wants us to behold his person and work in the bread and wine. He wants us to draw, he, rather, he wants us to have our attention drawn to himself. He wants us to lift our hearts to him and renew our faith in him and what he has done on our behalf to save us. There is beauty and glory and encouragement for the believer in our text this morning. And that's because in the Lord's Supper, our Lord preaches the good news to us and he reaffirms his covenant promises to us. He reminds us of his love for us and he feeds us with himself. There is, there is so much that can be said about the Lord's Supper. There are so many complex and deep things that can be taught about it. Uh, but this morning, my goal, so you're not, I'm not giving you the full picture of the Lord's Supper in this sermon. My goal is to simply show you what the Supper preaches to us as the visible gospel. And in doing so, I hope to show each of us how much we need Christ and also how Christ has met our need. So may God bless us and teach us this morning. Uh, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, 
I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and for all the blessing that you have promised to us today. We are blessed and glad to be among your people, to worship you and to be instructed by your word and spirit. And we are excited to see what you're going to do today as we sit under the ministry of your word. And so we ask now that you would bless us as we consider the scriptures. Please work in us this morning and grant us understanding, faith, and joy in what you have revealed in your word. Grant us, God, to behold Christ with the eye of faith revealed in the text as our great God and Savior. Teach us this morning and glorify yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our text begins with the words... And as they were eating, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover meal. At this point, Judas the betrayer is gone. Uh, John chapter 13 verse 27 tells us that Jesus had sent him out. And I, believe, I don't have time to defend it right now, but I believe that this occurred prior to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Only the faithful remain. Only the believing disciples are left with Jesus at this point. And as I've already said, they are celebrating the Passover. They're having the meal that celebrated God's work of redemption for Israel when he brought them out of slavery to Egypt. They're having a meal of remembrance about how God spared the Israelites from the death plague. A meal remembering how God instructed the Israelites to put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts so that he would pass over their houses and those inside would be spared. They're celebrating a meal, as I've said, I think for the last three weeks, that ultimately looked forward to Christ and his work of atonement, his work of salvation. Now, the disciples probably didn't see this. I I doubt very seriously that they understood this at this point. Uh, But the truth remains that that's what they were doing. That's what this meal pointed forward to. The slaughtered Passover lamb pointed forward to the slaughtered lamb of God, Christ Jesus, who would make atonement by his blood for all who would believe. The freedom of Israel from slavery pointed forward to the freedom from sin. For all who trust in Christ, the sparing of the Israelites from the wrath of God pointed forward to how those who trust in Christ will be spared from the wrath of God. And all of this, why? Because Christ would be made a sacrifice as a substitute for all who would ever believe on him in all ages. And this Passover meal instituted by God in the book of Exodus commemorated God's work of redemption for Israel. I'm, 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 I'm driving this home. I'm trying to. It was a meal of remembrance about what God had done, how God had worked salvation for an unworthy people, how God had saved them and made them his own. And it's in this context, don't miss this, it is in this context of remembering God's work of redemption for Israel that Jesus does something new. It's during this meal that Jesus institutes a new meal for his people, the church. And it is a ceremonial meal. It is a meal of remembrance. It is a meal that commemorates his work of redemption for his people. I want you to see two things already just from this. First, see this. The new covenant organically grows out of the old covenant. Does it not? 
The old was full of promises concerning the Messiah and his work of redemption. The old, the old covenant was full of types and shadows that pointed forward to Christ and the new covenant. And the new covenant established in the blood of Christ is the fulfillment of what God had promised to man since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Brothers and sisters, know this, just a brief, quick point. The Bible tells one story. And Christ is that story. Christ is the sum and substance of the scriptures. It's all about him, whether it's promising him or him coming or looking back on what he's done or looking forward to his coming. The whole book is about him. And the New Testament organically grows out of the old. Second thing I want you to see real quick. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Consider this with me. God instituted the Passover. And now Jesus is transforming the Passover into something new. Only God would have the prerogative to do such a thing. If anyone less than God did this, if anyone less than God altered God's own ordinance of the Passover, it would be the height of blasphemy. So what we see here is that Jesus is showing divine authority in transforming the Passover into something new. The Passover is officially finished. Jesus... Jesus this was the last Passover that God smiled upon. Right? The Lord's Supper has taken its place now because God has ordained it to be so. The shadow is gone because the substance has come, and the substance is Christ. And again, he is God because only God has this kind of authority to alter an ordinance. Now, before we get into the supper itself, I want to take a moment and, and address an issue of controversy. Um, I, I want to talk about the issue of symbolism in the Lord's Supper. And the word is, yes, the word is. Um, some, like the Roman Catholic Church, and again, I feel like I have to do this groundwork before we get into the text itself. Some, like the Roman Catholic Church, claim that is in our text means that the bread and wine are changed into the literal body and blood of Christ. They claim that when Jesus says, this is my body, that is is basically an equal sign and therefore, Jesus is saying that he has, in that moment, miraculously turned the bread and wine into his literal body and blood. Uh, but that is utter nonsense, and let me explain why. Uh, first, the Passover meal was a symbolic meal. If you know much about uh, the Jewish tradition, all of the food represented something, and it was symbolic. Uh, the lamb represented the slaughtered lamb in Exodus. Bitter herbs that were present there represented Israel's bitter slavery to Egypt. Uh, unleavened bread represented the haste with which the exodus had to be made. There wasn't time to let anything, to let the yeast rise, right? It was quick. All of the food in the Passover was symbolic, and that's the meal that they have been having this evening. The disciples understood the food has symbolic meaning, and Jesus was continuing that symbolic theme when he instituted the Lord's Supper, Right? Is that not entirely reasonable and natural to assume, given the context? I think so. I think so. Second reason, I have five, they're brief. But second, Jesus uses metaphorical language all the time. So we have warrant to believe he's doing that here, right? Elsewhere, Jesus says, I am the door, right? And that I am is the same uh, verb, same root verb as is here in the text. Right? Jesus elsewhere says, I am the door, and nobody believes that Jesus is made out of wood and has hinges. If you do, please see me after church. We need to talk. Right? Jesus is not a door. So then when Jesus says, this is my body, common sense tells us that we should take this symbolically. Third, 
this is fun, to literally drink the blood of Christ would be a violation of the Mosaic law that was still in effect at that time. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 forbid the consumption of blood. I don't personally believe that Jesus was commanding his disciples to break the ceremonial law of God that was still in effect because that would be sin, and he would have been instructing them to sin, which means he can no longer be our redeemer. I'm not willing to sacrifice the gospel over a foolish reading of this passage. Um, fourth, in verse 25, after the disciples drink the wine, Jesus calls it the fruit of the vine. He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until. Fruit of the vine, what does that mean? It means Jesus affirms that the wine was still really wine. He calls it the fruit of the vine after they've drunk it. After, so then, hear me, after the words of institution, this is the blood of the new covenant. After the words of institution, Jesus says it's still wine. It's fruit of the vine. Not that, as the Catholics would say, it just looks like wine and retains all the outward appearances of wine. No, Jesus says it is still the fruit of the vine. It's still wine. Therefore, he did not turn it into his blood. Fifth, and maybe most importantly, um, this and, and the, the Jesus would have been commanding sin. There are Christological issues and heresies that you have to commit in order to affirm that the bread and wine become the physical body and blood of Christ. Bear with me for a moment. If you don't catch all of it, that's fine. I can talk to you about it after church. The human nature of Christ is truly human. We confess this. Truly human, just like us, except without sin. It is united to the divine nature, but it is not blended or mixed or confused with the divine nature. This means, then, that the human nature of Christ is not infinite or omnipresent. There's only so much of it, and it can only be in one place at one time, just like our human nature, just like us. He's truly human, right? To claim that the bread and wine become the, the literal body and blood of Christ is to say that the human nature of Christ is infinite and omnipresent, since the Lord's Supper is celebrated all over the world by millions of people each week. And if you believe that the human nature of Christ is infinite and omnipresent, you now have to blend the two natures together to where the human nature now has some of the attributes that are exclusive to God, and you've just destroyed the truth that Christ is truly human like us, which means he can no longer be our mediator. I believe this is the ancient heresy of Eutychianism, I think is what it is. And we don't want to commit any Christological heresies. That's very important that we don't do that. Uh, so we reject this view. In light of all of this, we are under the constraint of Scripture and common sense to understand Jesus to be speaking figuratively at the Lord's Supper. Right? The, the bread and wine represent his, the body and blood of Christ. They are emblems. They are symbols of his body and blood. The Lord's Supper, again, I want to affirm, is more than a mere symbol. But the elements of the supper are truly bread and wine and remain truly bread and truly wine the whole time. All right. Now, with that said, let's get into the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let's consider first the broken bread. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. The bread is broken distributed to the disciples just as would be done with all bread. But then Jesus says something unique. He says, this is my body. The broken bread given to his disciples is a representation of his body, and it is a broken body. Jesus was to be broken completely. As Isaiah 52, 14 tells us, his appearance was so marred 
beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What's Isaiah saying? He would be so badly broken that he would no longer look like a human being. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He would no longer look like a man. His form would be broken that he would be beyond that of a man. He would be broken by beating. He would receive many blows from many wicked men. They would strike him with their fists as they mocked him and said, prophesy. He would be scourged with whips where his back would be laid bare and ripped open. His beard would be ripped out by mockers. His head would receive a crown of thorns that tore his flesh. His hands and feet would be pierced with nails. His side would be pierced with a spear. To paraphrase John Gill, his body would be broken and separated from his soul in death. Broken bread is a broken body. This is an emblem of his death. But it is also bread. Don't don't miss that. It's food. Bread gives life to men. Bread sustains men. Without food, without bread, we die. So this bread is indeed a symbol of death, but it is a death that gives life to others. And there is a cup of wine. Verses 23 and 24, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus blessed and passes a cup of wine to his disciples, just as would be done with all wine. But then he says, This is my blood poured out. The red wine symbolized his poured out blood. This is shed blood, precious blood, the blood of our Lord. Blood that would be poured out by fists that struck his face. Blood poured out as thorns pierced his brow. Blood shed as whips tore his flesh. Blood poured forth as nails were driven through him. Blood poured out in agony. The cup of wine is shed blood. So the wine then is like the bread, an emblem of his death. But again, it is also wine. It's drink. And drink is necessary for men to live. Without it, we die. More than that, wine is a symbol of the blessing of God and the rejoicing of his people. So this wine is a symbol of death, but it is death that brings life and brings blessing from God and joy to those who receive it. The two elements of the Lord's Supper signify the death of the Lord Jesus. But not just that. But again, but nevertheless, I don't, I don't want us to miss that. It's, they're symbols of his death. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim his death. He would die. And the supper commemorates that. And why would he die? His body was broken and his blood was poured out to establish the covenant. Is what he says. Verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. What's he referring to? Well, this concept of the blood of the covenant goes back to Exodus chapter 24. Verses 7 and 8, we read, Then he, that is Moses, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people 
and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses took the blood of sacrifices and sprinkled it on the people of Israel. And in doing so, the covenant that God made with Israel was ratified. And the Israelites vowed to keep God's covenant on pain of the judgment of God for breaking it. Here's the principle. The blood of a sacrifice ratified the old covenant. That's the principle. The blood, of, uh, the blood of a sacrifice ratified the old covenant. And now Jesus is saying that there is a covenant being made and his blood is what will ratify it. His blood is what will seal this covenant. And clearly we know Jesus is referring to the new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah, this is such an important passage. The prophet Jeremiah explicitly prophesied concerning this covenant. In Jeremiah, write this down if you're a note taker. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the covenant that Jesus is talking about at the Last Supper. And this covenant, as I just read to you, has to do with the forgiveness of sins. It has to do with the covenant members being made new and having God's law written on their hearts. It has to do with the personal, intimate knowledge of God for all that are in the covenant. This covenant is not about land or physical offspring or earthly promises of wealth and prosperity and longevity to those who obeyed like the old covenant was. This covenant is about salvation. This covenant is new and better with better promises and a better mediator, as the author of Hebrews tells us. And this is the covenant that Jesus Christ came to establish. As Jesus says in Matthew 26, 28, his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is directly related to the covenant Jeremiah talked about. The new covenant was to be established in Christ's blood. That is, it is established by his death. It was promised beforehand in many ways, Look at all the covenants of the Old Testament, promised in many ways, but it was not ratified in history until his death. Jesus says that the wine is the covenant in his blood. It, his blood is the sealing of the new covenant. But then here's a question, and we're doing, we're doing very basic theology here, but I want you to see how it is all connected because I found this beautiful. We ask the question, what does his death have to do with establishing this new covenant? How are they related? Brothers and sisters, his death will be the means that brings about the covenant promises of God to the people in the covenant. Let me say that again. 
his death will be the means that brings about the covenant promises of God to those in the covenant. His death will bring about the forgiveness of sins and personal fellowship with God for those who are in the covenant. Romans 3, 25 and 26 say this, of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me break this down for you all. This is gospel 101 stuff, but it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's good for us to hear these things over and over again. So hear me. God will not and cannot wink at sin. If sinners are to be forgiven, as God promised would happen for those in the new covenant, if sinners are to be forgiven, an atonement must be made. A sacrifice must be made. Someone must pay for the sins of the covenant members. Why? Because God's justice demands it. God's majesty has been offended by the sin of men. There is a debt for sin that must be paid, and God will have all debts settled. He will not simply forgive without justice being served. Some people get that wrong. They think, you ask God to forgive you, and he will. No, not without an atonement. We're not Muslims. We don't serve a God that just arbitrarily forgives people. An atonement must be made. And so a propitiation must be offered. A wrath-satisfying death must be given to take away God's anger against sinners for their sin. Please hear me. Someone must pay. Someone must die for the members of the new covenant. If sinners are to know God and sinners are to be forgiven, if the members of the new covenant are to receive what God has infallibly promised, someone is going to have to pay for their sins. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. The perfect man, the God-man, represents all the members of his covenant as their federal head or their covenant representative, and then he offers himself as a spotless substitute for their sins. And God punished him in the place of all who would ever come under his covenant headship. All who would ever trust in him and be brought into the new covenant. Jesus made atonement for the members of his covenant. He is the Lamb of God. He is this true Passover Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. He became our sin-bearing Savior and did away with our sin by paying for it in his death on a cross. He had his body broken and his blood poured out as a substitute for sinners. And in doing this, he purchased entrance into the new covenant. Consider that. He purchased, this is why the Redeemer, redemption. He purchased entrance into the new covenant. He purchased forgiveness and blessing and life for sinners who come to him. The new covenant brings salvation for all who will trust in the mediator of that covenant, Jesus Christ. And praise God, hear me, hear me. Instead of the people being sprinkled with the blood of an animal and agreeing to obey or suffer God's judgment like the old covenant, instead of that, 
Christ Jesus pours out his blood and sprinkles his people clean and offers perfect obedience on their behalf, for there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, not in this covenant. The new covenant is better than the old one. Why do I say that? Because this one saved sinners and the old one didn't. And you say, what about the Old Testament saints? We'll get there. This covenant actually saves, though. This covenant cannot condemn. There are no covenant curses in the new covenant. Why? For Christ condemns no one under his headship. None. This covenant has better promises than the old one. And it has a better mediator, Jesus Christ, who saves all who are in, under his headship and in his covenant. The wine represents the blood of Christ shed to establish this covenant. And we're bringing it all back together. The wine represents Christ's death that established this covenant. The Lord's Supper shows us our great need for Christ and how greatly Christ has met our need. Jesus also tells us that the blood of the covenant is poured out for many. The covenant is for more than the 11 present that evening, though they're the first ones to take the meal. It's for more than the Jews to whom Jesus first came. Jesus says, it is for many. This language of many reminds us of Isaiah 53, 12. I think it's the same in the Greek Old Testament at this point, actually. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who are the many for whom Jesus died? Who are the many? The answer, transgressors. The many are sinners. Oh, please hear me. I had to explain this to a homeless man two weeks ago, and it broke my heart that he had never heard this. Jesus didn't die for good people. The many are transgressors. His body was not broken, and his blood was not poured out for good people. He died for sinners. Are you a sinner? Good news. Jesus died for sinners. If you don't believe you're a sinner, you're disqualified from anything he might offer you, and you're disqualified because of your own self-deception and self-righteousness. But if you know that you're a sinner, then take comfort. His blood was poured out for many, for many transgressors of all kinds. It was poured out for any who would seek mercy from him. If you seek mercy from Christ, you will find it. If you're a sinner, there's good news. He died for many, for many transgressors. It is for sinners, and it is for many. Right? That's a lot. Let me expound upon that now. It is for all who ever looked forward to Christ in faith while living under the Old Covenant. You said, how are Old Covenant saints saved if the Old Covenant didn't save? They were saved by virtue of this covenant. He died for all who ever looked forward to him in faith under the Old Covenant. He died for all who ever looked to him that day when he instituted the Lord's Supper and died for sinners. And for all who would ever look to him in faith in the future after he had made the atonement. He died for many. Who are the many? The elect in all ages from the time of Adam until the day he comes again. The new covenant is the one that saves. It is the fulfillment of all God's promises and covenants throughout the Old Testament. It is what everything prophesied and pointed forward to. It is the culmination of all of redemptive history. The covenant of grace ratified in history 
in the blood of Christ is the new covenant. And again, I say it is the covenant that brings salvation and the forgiveness of sins to all who have ever believed on Christ in the past or ever will in the future. Please hear me. In light of this, know this. There only has ever been one way to be saved. That is through faith in Christ. The Old Testament saints were saved by believing in God's promises to one day send a redeemer to save them. This is why Romans says, Romans 3, 25 and 26, God set forward Christ as a propitiation. Why? Because in the former times he had passed over their sins. What was he doing? He was forgiving Old Testament saints based off of what Christ would do in the establishment of the new covenant. The Old Testament saints were saved by Christ. They were saved by Christ. This is why Jesus tells the Pharisees, Abraham looked forward to my day and rejoiced. Why? Because Abraham believed in Jesus. Abraham, to speak anachronistically, Abraham was a Christian. Abraham believed that God would send a Messiah. Did he know his name was Jesus? No. Did he understand all the complexities that he would be the God-man? No. He believed God's promise, though, that the Redeemer will come from your line. And he says, I believe what God said, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is faith in Christ. And New Testament saints, how are we saved? By believing that God has accomplished his promises in the Redeemer, Jesus. All salvation is by Christ alone and by virtue of the new covenant inaugurated in his blood. Anyone who was ever saved or ever will be saved is saved by Christ and the new covenant. Because that is the covenant that he mediates. Truly, brothers and sisters, his blood of the covenant was poured out for many. The elect in all ages. So we've considered what the elements of the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, what they represent. But there is more to the table than just bread and wine sitting on a table, isn't there? There's more than that. There is action that occurs at the table. I think Jesus wants his disciples to see something else. Consider the command in verse 22. Take. Take. Consider the giving in verses 22 and 23. He gave them the bread. He gave them the cup. There is giving and taking in this meal. Jesus gives the bread and wine and the disciples are commanded, take. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gave his body and blood and we are to receive it. We are to receive it with the hand of faith. We are to eat and drink with the mouth of faith. That is, we are to trust in his broken body and poured out blood. And that is simply another way of saying that we are to take in as we would food. We are to trust in, we are to, to depend upon Jesus Christ himself for our entrance into the new covenant and the salvation that he gives to his people. Please, please hear me. Please hear me. You must receive Christ with faith. You. I don't doubt anyone's profession of faith in here. I have no reason to, but just know this. You must receive Christ. It cannot remain an abstract thought for you. Please hear me. It cannot be a mere set of theological propositions. You must take and eat. You must take and drink. You must receive Christ himself by faith. You must depend upon him. You must look with the eye of faith to the broken body and shed blood of the Savior. You must trust in him to save you from your sins. You must take and eat. Just as we depend upon food and drink in order to live, so also we must trust in Christ if we are to live eternally. 
Just as we know that without food and drink we will die, we must look to Christ being completely convinced that without him I will perish. Just as you would look to food, you must look to him. He must become as real to us as bread and wine in our hands. He must become more precious to us than food and drink. We must recognize our need for him and receive him. Just as we need food and drink for our bodies, so also we need Christ for our souls. And without receiving him, there is only death and damnation for sinners. But again, hear the good news this morning. Jesus offers his body and blood. He is holding it out, as it were, and saying, take to whoever will receive him. He did not die for himself. He died for sinners. And he says, this is my body for you. Believe that it was for you and receive him. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see the glory here. The bread and wine, symbols of Christ's death, are at the exact same time symbols of our life in him. Do you see this? They're symbols of his death, and they're at the same time symbols of the salvation that he offers the world through his death. I'll confess this in your heart, Christian. His death is my life. His death is my life. Praise God. Now, for all of the glory that we've seen so far, we're still not finished. The Lord's Supper says more still. It gives us the promise of another day in the future. At the end of the supper, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There is a glorious word in this verse. Until. Until. Jesus is resolute. He's going to die. He says, I will not drink again. Right? He, he's steadfast and unmovable. He will go to his cross. Great suffering and death awaits him in just a few hours. He will die. But he says here, this will not be the end. Why? Because though he will not drink anymore, there will come a day when he will drink again. He will drink wine again someday. He says, until. Until. His body will be broken and his blood will be shed, but that will not be the end, for he will be raised. Death is not the end for Christ. He will rise from the dead. But hear me, he's speaking about something even beyond his resurrection. He's speaking about the end of all things, the consummation of his kingdom. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, what do we know? The kingdom came when Christ came. He preached that. The kingdom of God is at hand. That means it is near to you. It is here. He tells the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you or among you. Why? Because he's there. The kingdom of God came when he came. So the kingdom is already here, but he's talking about another day when the kingdom of God will come. What's, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fullest manifestation and expression of the kingdom. He's speaking of the fullness of it all when he returns at the end of history. Oh, he will not drink wine again for some time. He, he will not drink of the cup of gladness for some time. He must first die, but he will drink wine again someday. He will drink again with his bride once he has conquered sin, Satan, and death in history. He'll drink when the work is done. 
He will, he will drink wine again after he has subdued all things under his feet. He will drink wine again after his work is completed and this world is totally free of sin and sorrow. Once his work is fully completed and every enemy, including death, has been destroyed, then he will drink wine again. Once the dead are raised, his bride has received new bodies and the wicked are condemned and the earth is free from every stain of sin, he will drink again. It's as if Jesus is saying here, on that day, we will celebrate together my victory over everything. Why do you say, why, why did I include us in that? In Matthew, he says, I will not drink it again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. He says, I, we, we, we will drink again together. When I have conquered everything, I will feast with my bride. Brothers and sisters, on that day, we will begin an eternity of rejoicing with our Lord. We will feast forever face to face with the risen Christ. In the supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. What is that? He's coming again. We say it every week when we come to the table. And when he comes, the true and full celebration begins, of which the Lord's Supper is a foretaste. But before he would drink the wine of victory and eternal joy with his people, he must first drink another cup. He must first drink the cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs. And this he did for us and for our salvation. Alas, at the end of the supper, Mark records this, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I just wanted to put this here briefly. I thought this was excellent. They sung a hymn. This is probably Psalm 118. That would be customary to end the Passover. It's the end of the Hallel Psalms, right? the, the, the praise Psalms. And it's so fitting that Psalm 118 closes out the Passover because in this final Passover, this would have been sung. Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus would have led, the, the one who led Passover led the songs. And it was antiphonal singing. He would sing a line and they would say, Amen. He would sing a line and they would say, Hallelujah. So here you have Jesus singing with them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is God's doing. And his disciples say, Amen. How fitting is this? They sung together about how God would vindicate the Lord Jesus Christ after his death. And that God did, for on the third day he rose victorious. As we come near the close of this sermon, let me make two things very plain to you all. First is this. You must receive Christ by faith. If you want to have any hope whatsoever for eternal life, you must join the new covenant. And the only way to join the new covenant is to take and eat. To receive Christ with faith. There is no other way. If there is a false professor among us, I hope not, but let me say this to you. If Christ's blood was shed for many, why not for you as well? Embrace him by faith. Believe that he is dead and risen for you. Take him by faith and be saved. And hear me, this isn't just for believers or unbelievers. Christian, as you hear these things, you should see your own dependence upon Christ. He must be your spiritual food and drink. Do you eat and drink once and never again? Nonsense. 
You need him daily. You did not just need him and his gospel at the beginning of your life as a Christian. You need him now. He is your everything. He is your life. Daily receive him. I'm not saying you get justified again and again and again. That's, that's nonsense. That's blasphemous. But I am saying this. Daily we should recognize our dependence upon him and renew our trust in him daily. And in a sense, we receive him daily by faith. This is for us, Christian. And second, to the Christian coming to the Lord's table each week, I want, I want to say some things to you to keep in mind. In light of all of this, first, I want you to see the seriousness and sober spirit of the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial of the atoning work of Christ. What does that mean for you? It's a reminder of your sin. How awful must sin be if it took the blood of the Son of God to make atonement? And it was for you. You should be reminded of the seriousness of your sin. Likewise, you should see the joy of the supper. Why? Because it's a memorial of Christ's atoning work. It declares that Christ has paid the full penalty for those sins. It declares to you who receive it by faith that you are a member of the new covenant inaugurated in his blood. Christian, the supper tells you salvation is yours because Christ is yours and you belong to him by covenant. And thirdly and lastly, as you come to the table, see the promise of a future day of rejoicing. He will come again and we will feast with him forever, having no further need for the Lord's Supper. There'll come a day we don't need it anymore. Why? Because we're face to face with the one who came to us in the supper each week. That day is coming and we proclaim it every time we take the supper. May God grant each one of us to see our need for Christ. And may he likewise grant each of us to receive the needed Christ by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice on our behalf, for his broken body and shed blood that was for us, that we might be forgiven and have intimate knowledge of God through him. I pray that you would help us to see these things, and that is to behold Christ with the eye of faith in the supper each week as we come. God, as I said earlier, if there's an unbeliever not among us, I pray that you would help them to see that all they need to do is take and eat. All they need to do is receive Christ with the mouth of faith. Help all of us to believe upon him and to glory in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.